The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your son's resurrection, refreshment that we have received in the forgiveness of all of our sins. Hold before us this morning the example of your servant, Abraham, who trusted in you, and give us confidence in all of your promises. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So as I was saying after the service, um, we kind of had, uh, between Dr. German and I, we had kind of a summary look, a cursory look at Genesis that we had planned for you. And then kind of a little bit into it, you know, we, we talked and said, hey, let's not skip anything. Let's just do this thing. And, um, and look at all of Genesis. So this is kind of a special day for me because, well, a lot of these other narratives I've maybe taught on before, spent a lot of time thinking about. Chapter 23, I think, is just one of those that you maybe read right over and just don't think deeply about it, but it has to do with Sarah's death and Sarah's burial. Um, just for a review, we're looking at the whole story of Abraham's life, and I'm convinced that Abraham, the, the fulfillment of Abraham's prophetic ministry the very place that God was leading him the whole time from his call out of the Ur of the Chaldeas to the Promised Land. It was all building up to this moment of what happened on Mount Moriah with his son Isaac. And you remember when we had a look at that a couple weeks ago? And we were really enriched there because we had a sermon on it with a guest preacher. Pastor Scott Shields preached on that. And we had a Bible study, and then I also gave it some attention at the Easter vigil service, if you were here. Because I'm really convinced that the account of Abraham and Isaac is fundamentally a resurrection, a resurrection narrative. And just think about it. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to Mount Moriah, a place that I will show you, show you, and offer him there up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Abraham cuts the wood, lays it on Isaac's back, and Isaac and Abraham, they march up the mountain together. And Isaac lays on down on that altar. He's bound to the altar. Earlier he had said, where is the lamb for the... I see the fire and the wood, Dad, but where's the... Where's the what? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And as Abraham, God's servant, takes the, the fire in one hand and the knife in the other, the angel of the Lord says, stop. Now I know that you fear God and have not withheld your only son. And Abraham looks up and what does he see? Preachers, preachers just love this, by the way, on Good Friday. They see a ram 
caught in a thicket by his horns. A ram is a mature male lamb. Right? What a clear picture of Christ. What a clear picture of Christ. We call it, you call it the Gospel 2000 BC. Right? And you have, um, and like I said, it's a, it's a resurrection narrative, and the writer to the Hebrews tips us off on that. That this is a resurrection narrative. Abraham says to, uh, to the men, I and the boy are, over, are going over there to worship, and we will, and we're coming back to you. So Abraham believed that even if Isaac was reduced to ashes, God's promises would stand strong, and that his son would have to be resurrected from the dead. And that death is no barrier to the promises of God. Death is no barrier to life everlasting. And that is the confession of every Christian. As, as hopefully you heard a couple weeks ago, we remember that the place of Mount Moriah was the exact place where the temple was built. It was, and some folks who have done kind of a deep dive of archaeology are really convinced that uh, Mount Calvary is the exact same spot as Mount Moriah. So the exact spot where where Isaac is trudging up the mountain with the wood on his back were probably the same streets of Jerusalem that Jesus went forth to the cross to be crucified for our salvation. So that Isaac lays down on the altar that Jesus lays down on the altar that Isaac escaped from. He is our our ram. So it's beautiful, right? When Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized, John the Baptist, behold the lamb. All history, all uh, the whole biblical narrative has been leading up to this, to this point. So given that it is a, a, a resurrection narrative, how interesting, how interesting that what event happens in the life of Abraham and Sarah right after this. Sarah's death and Sarah's burial. So we have this resurrection narrative pointing forward to the Lamb of God to take away sin and death and the power of the grave and now Sarah falls asleep in the Lord. Interesting, you got a whole chapter on Sarah's death and burial. And I gotta confess, never done a Bible study on this. I don't think I've ever gave it a whole lot of attention. And um, so I'm looking forward to our conversation. Should be an opportunity to talk about marriage. Should be an opportunity to talk about death and dying and proper care of, of the dead and of our loved ones. Should be an opportunity, hopefully, to talk about funeral arrangements and the hope that we all have in the resurrection and the blessed life of the world to come. Can I have a reader for the chapter? Chapter 23. It's 20 verses. Who's up for that? Who's up for that? Thanks, Ronan. Why don't you stand up and 
Go for it. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet me with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among them. Now Ephraim dealt among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me, and I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephraim, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephraim, which was in Machpelah, uh, which was before Mamre, and the field, and the cave which was on it, and the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were, to, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field, Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Thanks, Ronan. Yeah, you said it perfectly. Machpelah, Machpelah. Yeah, very nice. So just so no one's left behind, who is Sarah? Sarah is Abraham's wife. Remember, she was Sarai, now she's Sarah, Sarah, the name means, the name literally means a noble lady, a noble lady or a princess, a princess. And what a beauty she was. You know, the scriptures say all sorts of really nice things about her. She's listed as a heroine of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Isaiah the prophet Isaiah speaks of um, Sarah as something of a mother for every Christian. And um, St. Peter, chapter 3, holds up Sarah as a model woman, wife and mother to emulate. 
and speaks about a hidden beauty within Sarah. So, for very few women in both the Old Testament and New Testament, do you have the scriptural writers really holding up a, a woman as an example, and even compared to the Blessed Mother of our Lord, who is no doubt an example, just scripturally speaking, like if you wanted to be a fundamentalist, a biblicist like me, you know, more is said about Sarah than, than Mary, the mother of our Lord. That's not to demean her or anything, but, but Sarah is really held up as the, as the model Christian. I think I have put something on here. Oh yes, this is nice. This is what Peter writes. But let your adorning be the hidden, be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, this, he's talking about Sarah here, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And that's what Sarah was. Imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You know, it's worth thinking about that uh, Sarah has this sort of um, hidden beauty. Um, and it's worth thinking about that, that you have a woman who is turning heads at the age of 90. That's quite a quite late, isn't it? That is quite a lady. And I think there's something about the, um, I think there's something going on here with the rejuvenating, with the rejuvenating promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, you know, aging and death is a consequence of sin. Maybe there's something that Sarah is carrying in her, this, this latent promise, this, this promise manifesting in, in the birth of Isaac, which is the line of Jesus that was rejuvenating and restoring where you could, you know, she just kind of glowed. So you have, you had Pharaoh and you had Abimelech, these mighty kings who had access to anything, you know, women included, and they just were captivated and taken by, by Sarah. Very interesting. Also, the listing of years is, is unique. Never in the scriptures, as far as I know, do you ever have a woman's age listed out here at death. So uh, this blessed matriarch lives 127 years. She died at uh, Kiriath Arba, Hebron. This is, um, what big event had happened there? Did it a few weeks ago. The visit of the three angels. The visit of the three angels. Elijah? Yeah, the oak at Mamre. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, how does Abraham um, respond to the death of his wife? How does Abraham respond to the death of Sarah, his wife, this is from Luther. I just want to share a little Luther with you today, too. 
agree or disagree, Abraham had all of the promises of the gospel. He had the promise of the resurrection. Therefore, he had no need to weep. Because, you know, they had a good long life and Sarah was going to be raised anyways. And he should just be thankful for the years that they had. Agree or disagree? Yeah, disagree. Um, in fact, the Hebrew here for this weeping, we're not talking a couple tears here. This is, this is some real weeping. This is some real lamentation. This is really some bitter tears here. Um, you know, most funerals that I go to, how much, how much weeping and lament, loud lamentation do you hear? What's that, Mitchell? It's not usually very loud. Yeah, it's not very much. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, um, you know, on TV or something, or where there's some sort of bombing in the Middle East or another part of the world. And it looks very different. You, you have the women just wailing, just yelling. And there's really a mourning culture in most other parts of the world. So in our culture, in our environment, we have this unique situation because, you know, we're kind of living on the fumes of like Greek philosophy and kind of stoicism. When we say stoicism, we mean kind of unaffected by the extremes of human emotion. And I'm not trying to toss all Greek philosophy or stoicism out, but there is something he said, right, for self-control and moderation. But, uh, you know, Luther in this passage here, he has some real concerns and real frustration with kind of a pagan, heathen take on death. So, as a Christian, what is the proper response to death? We don't say, oh, well, we believe in the resurrection, so there's nothing to... I mean, at some point you get here, but we also do mourn the severity of death, the bitterness of it. Abraham here is recognizing, lamenting, expressing the, the deep, uh, violent intrusion that death is. So... We Christians, we never say that death is just part of the natural life cycle. We never say that death is natural. It is an unnatural, violent intrusion into a world that God called very good. And so there's always, I think, a, a, a temptation to downplay death. I had a professor at the seminary, uh, John Plesson, he would say, he said, don't take the teeth out of death. Don't domesticate death. Don't pretend like it's something trivial. Um, so we Christians that we, we mourn. This is from Luther. Why then does Abraham weep? My answer. By this example, Holy Scripture shows that mourning or weeping over dead parents, a wife or friends, does not displease God. Indeed, it is wrong not to weep. The world, which is totally leprous, calls that lack of natural affection, which means not being influenced by affection or love for one's wife, children, or relatives. Courage, that's what they call it. But this is utter madness and not a virtue. 
So he's critiquing kind of a, a, a Greek or pagan understanding of death. Oh, it's just natural. It happens to everyone. Kind of move on. Kind of steal yourself. And of course, Christians aren't, aren't called to do that. I had a, um, my first wake-up call, I think thinking about this, was during a vicarage. I, a vicarage is where you're studying to be a pastor. So typically your third year, you go to a, a parish and you study under a parish pastor and you learn the craft, you observe. And so mine was at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Melrose Park, Illinois. It's a suburb of Chicago. And there happened to be a large number of, for some reason, Argentinians in the congregation, which is totally cool. And they're Lutherans and they loved it there. And um, when I was there, one of the matriarchs of, of that family died. And she was in her 90s, I think. And I'll just never forget this funeral. We did the whole thing at the gravesite. And after, yeah, during the committal, there's lots of weeping. There's lots of people are hanging on each other, just weeping and uh, just letting it all out. And, um, and then afterward, typically you have the coffin on kind of a belt and then the belt is lowered. Most of the time, people will hightail out of there even before the grave is lowered. But they stuck around for that and not just that, but they stuck around for all, for the whole thing to be filled with dirt. We were there for hours and there was weeping and lamenting and mourning and people just, the, the women wailing and people just hanging on each other and they were really into this. It was so strange for me. Because I don't know about you, but there's just something in the air, just in our environment where, and I suppose maybe the South Americans didn't have the same influence that we have of, I think, two things. First, Gnosticism. You've heard of this, right? Maybe less concern, less reverence for the body. So maybe you've heard some really bad sermons where you say, the body doesn't matter at all. We're just this soul kind of flying up to heaven, and the body doesn't really matter. That's, that's, a, that's a heresy of Gnosticism, an early church heresy. And I think that thinking about Gnosticism still still clings to us all. But of course, our Lord did not just die to redeem these souls, but he died to redeem these bodies, which are a, un a unity of body and soul. And then we're also influenced by Stoicism. So I didn't see any of them. I didn't see Stoicism or Gnosticism in their thinking here. Just full mourning. A little more Luther. The Holy Spirit praises the natural feeling. That is, whatever sadness you're feeling. In fact, he does so in the case of the greatest men. Men noted for their virtue, piety, and deeds. They were not logs, blocks of wood. It's talking about those who have lost loved ones. Or dullards who are not affected by anything, whether joyful or sad. It is the mark of the godly to be affected by the misfortunes, the joys, and the lot of pious people. And to grieve even when their adversaries are in danger. And the Holy Spirit directs these sentiments. You got that? The Holy Spirit directs these sentiments in the godly. Others do not mourn. Others who do not mourn boast of a certain manliness and firmness of character. 
but they are devoid of affection and are without knowledge of and indifferent toward things, that is, toward the creatures of God. Got that? So a Christian response is to be in tune with the Creator who also manifests itself in human creatures. So Luther loved this. There was a quote by Augustine, and, and Luther used it all the time, of, where he would say, um, honor God in each other. Honor God in each other. That being said, I also want to um, hold, hold a balance here because our, our grief, our Christian grief, it also has limits, doesn't it? And so Luther also said this, but weep with moderation, that is, set a limit to your grief. Nevertheless, your weeping must be kept within bounds, lest you be consumed by excessive grief. So while you have a full allowance to, to, to grieve and to mourn death and misfortune, what sort of limits are set up for a Christian there? What sort of limits are set up for a Christian? Ben? Is it in one of the epistles where all of us don't, don't grieve as those who have no hope? Yeah, perfect. Perfect. I'll just read that, that first sentence. I'm glad you nailed it here. But we not, do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay. Moving on. I'm looking at verse 3 and 4. We've got to start moving, right? Verse 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead. Interesting, he calls him kind of his dead one. And said to the Hittites, the language here is sons of Heth, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. You can see here that Abraham's deep mourning has limits, right? It, I wouldn't say it ends, but it has its limits here. Uh, he rises up and he's beginning to make funeral arrangements. Michelle? So if he keeps referring to it as like, for his dead and like, that I may bury my dead and like, is it, does like the, Yeah, the, yeah. The language I believe is is my my dead one, and I think it's I, I don't think it's meant to be a cold, impersonal uh, thing here, but I think it's just to emphasize the severity and the reality of death here, and calling a thing where it really is. I just want to make sure that it didn't like since in English it might 
my dad can mean like my dad's singular. Or yeah, it's as I understand it's singular. I have to double check, but it's singular. Yeah, my dead one. Um, he goes to the Hittites, and how does Abraham identify himself here? How does he identify himself? Freddie? A sojourner, a traveler, and also a stranger, a foreigner. Kind of interesting, right? He's traveling around in his own, in his own land. He's traveling around, around in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, and yet he always identifies himself as a stranger, foreigner, sojourner. Very interesting. He's traveling with a crew of probably a thousand people. He had four, 400 men for sure, not counting women and children. And here they are, wandering around, and he addresses, he, he, he self-identifies, right, as a sojourner and foreigner. And I just love this, by the way. Um, keep in mind, at this point, what does Abraham own in terms of property? Nothing, right? Here he is. God has promised him all this land. He doesn't own anything. And the only little plot of land he's concerned about is what? Cemetery. A cemetery to bury his wife. He himself will join her in that same tomb. So will Isaac and Rebecca, and so will Jacob and Leah. Special little place. In fact, um, Luther in his commentary, he kind of plays around with this, and he's kind of convinced that, remember in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus rises from the dead, and you've got all these people walking out of their tombs and walking around the holy city in Jerusalem? It was kind of a short travel from Machpelah, and you don't have to accept this. You don't have to make a dogmatic thing about it. But Luther thinks that this, this is probably Abraham and his crew who kind of had a front row entrance there. You remember that in Matthew's Gospel? Don't have to hold to it, but... I mean, if there, yeah, so we believe that. So if people were walking around and being raised from the dead, well, who gets priority? I mean, maybe, they're, maybe they would be... Maybe they would be first there. Look at this from Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So here he is, land of Canaan, promised land, but he's not interested in building up a kingdom. He's not interested in building up an earthly empire. And so you have this language in all the historic hymns of the church, I'm but a, heaven is my home, I'm but a stranger here, right? What is the world to me? I just love that hymn. And so we have... Uh, Abraham something of a model of a Christian in pilgrimage. And I know we Lutherans, are not, we're not wild about the pilgrimage thing, right? There's all sorts of, you know, history there that we have, 
you know, concerns about his kind of meritorious pilgrimages during Luther's time. But this idea of pilgrimage is fundamental to the gospel. I mean, you have people, the first Christians, they weren't called Christians. That was a nasty political title given to them, which in turn we own, but they are called people of the way, right? There's movement. You're actually going somewhere. They're looking forward to the city of God. And I think so much of the despair and anxiety that we see in our own age has to do with no understanding of being on a journey, no understanding of being on a pilgrimage and having a story and going somewhere. That's the source of our, our joy, our hope. And so we're called to direct our lives in on such a way that we don't become overly entangled with the things of this world. We're just passing through, like Abraham, right? I'm just passing through. I just got a temporary residence here, and I'm storing up treasures in heaven, and I'm on my way. I'm not there, but I'm on my way. Questions, comments thus far on what you're hearing? Sarah. Yeah, I think so. Um, um, yeah, there's this great, there's this book by Alvin Schmidt that upset all sorts of people, and it's called, it was published, I think, by CBH, and it's called, oh, what's it called? Yeah, Cremation, Ashes to Ashes, Cremation, question mark. And I think he, uh, he gives the history of cremation. And as a parish pastor, I'm, I'm gentle on this sort of thing. I'm soft on this. But I basically like to make the case that in the scripture, Sarah, I think we got a really consistent witness. Right? I mean, look at Sarah. She's, she's laid in a tomb by her husband. And then the best one to lead us is our Lord, taken down from the cross. Complete, total regard, reverence for the body as the body is wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in the manger of the earth. And, um, and so, we, so we recognize that these bodies matter and that these same bodies, I mean, you have a beautiful Old Testament text today, right, about these bones, these sinews coming together. Did you catch that? Being raised up and receiving the breath of God and standing up upon the earth. And so we believe that these bodies will be resurrected. So, is God capable of resurrecting ashes? Um, absolutely. But um, I think there's a fairly uh, strong scriptural witness for what we would call traditional burial of following our Lord's lead and being um, laid in the manger of the earth in hope of the resurrection. So, I don't think there's a strong scriptural witness to the... Uh, practice of cremation. I'd like to be sensitive and gentle with parishioners with this sort of thing. But I gently, maybe a little more than gently, encourage traditional burial because it also gives an opportunity for the Christians to grieve. I'm convinced, actually, that there's something about the grieving process, and Abraham was able to enjoy this, where you have to get your, your hands on the on the body. 
what I what I mean is if, if if someone is reduced to ashes, I do think that you are potentially short changing someone of the opportunity to enjoy the finality the the finality of earthly life there. So you see loved ones put their hand on the on their loved one on their shoulder chest, you'll see them kiss the forehead of their deceased. And I think sometimes that opportunity, that little sweet opportunity is missed with cremation. I think there's a, a, I think it can potentially create some angst or some unsettled, it's like you're missing one little step in that grieving process. So I have some pastoral uh, concerns there with that. So yeah, it's a great question. Any others on that? Aaron? You had mentioned Luther's uh, thought that uh, Abraham and Sarah were the ones who were raised from tombs at Jesus' death. Does he have any comment? Um, will, will they be in the resurrection on the final day, or, or did they get to go early? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's Luther, man. It's, yeah, it's a little uh, speculative. I'm always kind of puzzled by that. Um, Theologians have a fancy name for it. They call it this inaugurated eschatology, where sometimes you, yeah, you're, you're, it's like a vision. It's a, of of what's to come. Um, but yeah, it's hard to know because you also have those, um, yeah, other people who are raised from the dead and ascended to heavens. Like, are they going to do go through that again? So, um, I don't have a dogmatic uh, statement on that, Aaron. Yeah, it could be that they just got a preview and they got a front row resurrection there and maybe beat us beat us uh, into the door kind of beat us there I don't I don't know for sure okay uh, what does he want give me property now it sounds to us like he's saying give me your land give me your property but he but in real estate this is really a offer to purchase sort of thing this is what can I buy uh, what's for What's for sale here? The Hittites answered Abraham. I'm at verse 5 and 6 here. Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. That's interesting, isn't it? You got these pagan uh, Hittite folks. They call Abraham a prince of God. And I do think there's something there. Like when you got this patriarch roll up to you and he's preaching the gospel, and he's rolling a thousand deep, you know. And he's a prophet and a pastor and a preacher. There's probably, you know, you know and he's, he's bringing the word of God wherever he goes. There's got to be like a, there's got to be a sense of woe. Looks like the church, doesn't it? You know, the church is very breathtaking. So they, they recognize that there's a hidden majesty in in Abraham here. Bear your dead in the choicest of our tombs. So what are they saying here? It means you got free pick. We're not going to withhold anything from you. Verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. I know Dr. Gurman had talked a little bit about kind of a Christian posture of dealing with doing business in an ungodly world. How do faithful Christians deal in an ungodly world? And what... How is he dealing with these pagans? He's not saying, oh, I can't, I can't trust these people. Look at these unbelieving, heathen, godless people. and They're going to try to shake me down. How's Abraham 
interacting with them here. Courteous, respectful, generous, humble. He's bowing before all of them. And um, I'm going to start flying a little bit. So he wants to go after Ephraim, son of Zohar. And he's got his eye on, on a certain area of this land. He's got his eye on the cave of Machpelah. And who owns it? This guy named Ephraim. And he's at the end of the, it's at the, end of the field. And he's willing to pay full price. Now, it's kind of interesting. It starts with the Hittites. And when this happens, he, um, first you have to go to the gate of the city. So when you're, when you're dealing with, uh, when you're coming into a land like this among an empire, among these Hittite people, first you have to get approval. You can't just go to a, a single solitary individual and say, hey, I'd like to purchase some land. You have to deal with the tribe. You have to deal with the nation. So it happens at the gate of the city. That's where politics are done. That's where the city hall is. That's the courthouse. That's the register of deeds. And now he's entering into negotiations with Ephraim. Um, so this is a public trans transaction. I want to skip ahead. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 14 here. Ephraim answered Abraham, verse 15, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So when you read this account, um, initially, if you have Western eyes, and you're not used to kind of bartering back and forth in a Middle Eastern Bedouin culture, what does it look like Ephraim wants to do with this land for Abraham? Yeah, it looks like he wants to give it to him. And I think when you read it through the first time, that's what it seems like. However, this is just bartering. I give it to you. It's yours. So if you read the Bible sometimes, you'll have a king or a, uh, a king or a rich landowner, and they say like it. They say things like this. Oh, uh, just ask me anything, and I will give you half the kingdom. Okay, yeah, I'll take half the kingdom. No, you won't, right? So this is just, this is just Middle Eastern commerce, I think. And so when, when Ephraim uh, says $400, if you've ever done a trip overseas or down south or Middle East, if, if you're looking to buy something on the street and you're given an initial offer, that's an invitation for you to do what? Yeah, counteroffer and draw down the, and draw down the price. But, um, but that doesn't happen. What does Abraham do? He immediately counts out the silver. 400 shekels, by the way. Keep, keep in mind that David paid 50 shekels for the temple for the Temple Mount land. So I, you know, I'm not an expert with like, you know, ancient currency, but it seems pretty obvious to me that there's a pretty outrageous amount of money. Josh, what do you want to add? Oh, yeah, I like so that's that's a, a, 
Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not uh, tipped off on the inflation, too. And what he wants is a, and he wants to buy this tomb. However, Ephraim's not just going to give him the cave, is he? Yeah. Hey, you can't just have the cave, you've got to buy the whole field, too. And as I said, I, really, I don't think he's, it's given in a way. I've, I've seen some commentaries that are convinced he's just given this as a free gift. I don't think so. Abraham carefully counts out all the money, 400 shekels of silver. It's a lot of money. But Abraham doesn't, he doesn't barter. And why do you, why do you think he doesn't barter? Yeah, he told me to pay full price. What else could you think of, Michelle? What's too important? Yeah, it's nice. How can you possibly put a price tag on, on that? It'd be like going to the, the funeral director and bartering back and forth on a coffin or something, right? And it's just not really appropriate. Also, I think there's something to be said for generosity in general. So generosity, generally speaking, for a Christian is a wonderful confession of the gospel as we remember God who gave himself for us and who gave his all. It's worth it to Abraham. Just as a little side note, a couple years ago we received a generous financial gift from one of our members and um, it was kind of interesting, you know, and we're going to use it for outreach and things like that and missions and we're really so excited for that opportunity. And uh, John, can I show you your story? I caught John in surprise. And uh, kind of the first request of exploring what might be done with this money is um, to say, hey, is it possible for a church to have a cemetery? We don't have one. So we don't know for sure if there's a way we're going to go, and we don't know if it's, if it's God's uh, plan for us. But as a congregation, I think it's just something to think about. When you think about land and possessions, you know, what matters? You know? Our lives and what we own and everything we do, everything that we are, should bear witness to the resurrection and the blessed life of the world to come. One final thought. I'll just be a minute. Um, Abraham's descendants are preparing to go into 400 years of exile, excuse me, of slavery and bondage in Egypt. I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that Silver, biblically speaking, is the currency of redemption. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Abraham's uh, offspring and the Hebrews are in the land of bondage for how many years? 400. But redeemed by the Lord. Right? So I think there's something there. I always like to show you a little art. There's Abraham in this exchange. There's Abraham burying Sarah. So I think we got a nice model here, Sarah Savitsky, right? With, yeah, with proper care for the dead. And um, I'm not trying to demean anyone who's gone different paths. I have grandparents and family and friends who are in a different course there. But I think there's maybe a gentle confession to be made here about this, about this, about burial. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. My children were so scandalized. We saw episode one of Star Wars. And what's that clip? <laughs> what's, um, 
Who's the Who's the guy who burns up there? Yeah, thank you. That was That was really tough. That was really tough for my tribe. You know? And so I think, and it it's it's tough to see. So historically, yes, cremation is historically associated with paganism. The idea is that the body is immaterial. The soul is only the only thing that that matters. And so the Christian confession should be really brought in harmony. And historically, if you looked at 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it was unthinkable. Christians didn't do it. Let's put it that way. Didn't do it. So it's a phenomenon that's developed very rapidly over the last number of years. I think that Gnosticism plays into that. I think finances play into that. I feel like, um, I think some of it maybe has to do with avoidance of death or, or sparing people of that Morning that I think they should actually go through that hard stuff of really getting your, your hands on them. So. We'll sing two verses. I know I kept you a little long. Let's sing two verses here. This is a nice little <coughs> hymn about Abraham. The God of Abraham